0: To learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE. Welcome to the Cybertraps Podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author, of the, and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in New York, I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices.
0: Over the coming weeks and months, we will be talking to some of the nation's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety, and today from the supply chain management world. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world.
1: All right. We will give a quick shout-out to our inaugural mission partner, Buoyancy Digital. Buoyancy Digital is proud to be the inaugural mission mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety-compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and Bing-accredited brand and audience-safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training from media and publishers, check out Buoyancy Digital. For more information on working with Scott and Buoyancy Digital, visit... BuoyancyDigital.com or at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn. Hello there, Jethro.
0: Hello. Happy Thursday to you.
1: It is an interview Thursday, and it is fun to be talking with a bunch of people today.
0: Indeed. So
1: I get the honor of introducing our next guest, who is a fellow expert witness with myself, and her name is Rosemary Coates. Rosemary is the president of Blue Silk Consulting a supply chain management consulting firm. She is also the founder and executive director of the Reshoring Institute, a 501c3 nonprofit and nonpartisan organization Focused on expanding U.S. manufacturing, she has been a management consultant for more than 25 years, helping over 80 global supply chain clients worldwide. She is an Amazon.com best-selling author with five supply chain management books, so that goes right to my heart, including the Reshoring Guidebook: 42 Rules for Sourcing and Manufacturing in China and The Legal Blacksmith, How to Avoid and Defend Supply Chain Disputes. She also works as an expert witness on legal cases involving global supply chains. So Rosemary, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on with us and helping us to understand some of these global issues. This is a little bit of a turn for Jethro and myself. We tend to focus a lot on kind of the micro-parenting world, and this is a chance to talk a little bit more broadly. Interesting, Interestingly, one of our other interview guests coming up is involved with national cybersecurity, so I think that there's probably some overlap in terms of what you guys deal
2: with. Yeah, well, it's a pleasure to be here and to talk about supply chain, which is my life, but also to take a little bit different perspective, I think, uh, you know, there's one thing to consider the, the end product of, um, security and, and, uh, the use of, of uh, technology tools and uh, all the benefits of consumer products and so forth. But where does it all originate? And and I would argue that it's supply chain. And if you know a little bit more about the background of how uh, technology works in supply chain, it might be helpful for understanding how your personal equipment and your personal use of technology uh, works together. So it's a oh, broader absolutely. understanding.
1: Yeah, this will be really interesting, uh, Rosemary. So, obviously, Jethro and I talk a lot about consumer products that schools and parents use. And, you know, there are security concerns that arise with those. There's obviously the usage concerns that we talk about. But, kind of help us step back a little bit. And, and what's the role of the supply chain in that whole process of getting things into consumer oh. hands?
2: Okay, so let's, let's start with talking about um, how the supply chain maybe operates um, with respect to, uh, uh, let's say laptops. So here we are in the middle of a pandemic. Now kids are working from home and you know, many parents didn't have enough laptops to share, right? So there was a, a huge demand, an enormous spike in demand for, some, for a small uh, entry-level uh, laptops. Uh, not small, but uh, low-end, uh, low-cost laptops around the world. So the, so the first thing that happened, of course, you know, the, the, uh, the virus was uh, originated in Wuhan, China, which mm-hmm. is uh, kind of a north, northeast part of China. And um, it's an automotive center. So in China, manufacturing is clustered around different places. And Wuhan happens to be the automotive cluster, much like Detroit is in the U.S., uh, and and so there was automotives that are, that are made there. There's a, all kinds of auto parts. Almost all the auto parts being imported into the U.S. are from that area of China. But there's also semiconductor production and um, metal fabrication and so forth. All the things that are component parts that go into a final end product. And what happened when they shut down Wuhan is all of a sudden the supply chain was pinched. All of a sudden, not enough people can get those uh, those um, semiconductors and the component Mm -hmm. parts that they need for all kinds of products, not just automotive. So automotive makers, if they couldn't source in Wuhan, they went to other parts of China like Xinjiang, which is near Hong Kong, Guangzhou, Dongguan. Uh, these areas that are known for electronics production, and when they started sourcing there, then it reduced the supply chain for electronic parts and you know it has this kind of ripple effect throughout industries and therefore the uh, big spike in demand for laptop computers was pinched off right and that's why you couldn't you couldn't get a laptop for a while you know I mean here we are in a in this crunch and trying to uh, school our children at home, and you can't get a laptop, right? So, um, and, and that's because these supplies were pinched off all over the place as they shut down Chinese factories. So what happened was it really exposed a lot of vulnerability in global supply chains, um, in 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 ordering parts and finished products, particularly from China, but it caused a global shortage all over the world. Um, so, you know, it was a Kind of a recognition that our supply chains are intertwined everywhere in the world. Um, so we're not just dependent on China, but um, when you know, when China sort of chokes, then the rest of the world chokes too. Everywhere making these products, including the U.S. Yeah, and so that's... you know, this is a kind of thing that affects your day to day life. And while it's not a security issue per se. It certainly is, you know, has a personal effect on your day to day livelihood. No, that's um,
1: certainly true. A um, couple of quick points that come out of what you're talking about. First of all, coincidentally, I spent uh, the better part of a year in Guangzhou uh, because my wife did a Fulbright Scholar program over there and and I went with her. (coughs) So we actually got to see um, like Fujian and some of these other cities in the area with these massive electronic factories. Um, And then unrelated to that, but similar in terms of these choke points my favorite pandemic story um, arose from the fact that of course people went nuts with bread baking um, during the crazy everybody had their sourdough starter mine mine's named Hamilton for whatever that's worth (laughs) Um, but one of the things that almost instantaneously vanished worldwide are the baskets in which sourdough rises you could not buy them anywhere and actually some of them do come from china a bunch come from germany and and stuff like that but it was one of the first things that really drove home what the pandemic was doing to supply chains really
2: around the world yeah my my favorite my favorite thing to to beat on is uh clorox wipes or lysol wipes and you couldn't get those to save your soul. And eventually, you know, you could find one or two on Amazon for $50 a, a canister that usually cost five bucks. Um, so, you know, there was some of that going on. Um, and for what reason? I mean, think about it. You've got a, a little plastic case and you've got these little paper wipes inside uh, and some some Clorox or some Lysol that's in. I mean, it's a really simple product that uh, these companies should be able to set up contract manufacturing for and an increase because there was such an increase in demand, but they should be able to increase their production pretty quickly. I mean, I would say within, you know, maybe six or eight weeks, they ought to be able to find contract manufacturers and set up manufacturing lines all over the place. But what what a supply chain failure. <laughs> I, I was just beside myself. I mean, there is no way you couldn't get these things anywhere. Yeah. And still, were, yeah, even yesterday, was, I was at the grocery store. There's still no Lysol Clorox wipes <laughs> on the shelf. I mean, that's a with, supply chain failure for sure. Yeah.
1: And of course, that's directly relevant to the teachers who are trying to reopen the schools and yeah. all the rest of that. Jethro.
0: So my question here is we have these supply uh, chain constraints that uh, you know a lot of people have gone to a just in time manufacturing process where you get the things delivered right as you need them. And that to me what what the pandemic really revealed was that if something bigger happens and certainly the the cold weather down in Texas earlier this year, that certainly betrays that if we're relying on these things like that that are just in time, we're going to be in trouble. As other issues come up, what can we do as regular everyday consumers to be prepared for that?
2: Yeah, so so you are absolutely correct. Um, The pandemic was a huge event, obviously, but there are all these other events that are going to happen that pinch the supply chain, like in Texas, for example, um, so, uh, And so you have to think about this in a broader context. I think over the past 20 years or so, most global supply chains have implemented technology. So a lot of software uh, in order to be able to track where things are in your supply chain. And all the focus was there. So supply chains have gone from somebody on the back dock, putting something in a box to, uh, to managing uh inventory in the pipeline all over the world uh and what the pandemic and of course the the weather and so forth has caused is uh uh, the exposure of all this risk so what companies are doing and a lot of consumers is stockpiling i mean look you saw people buying toilet paper (laughs) For, for 10 years, right? Because they wanted to stockpile it because of the pandemic. So that's what happens in business as well. They so start to stockpile things. While the CFO may be saying, we got to save money. You got to take inventory out of the pipeline. You can't stockpile stuff. They've been saying that for 15 years. Now, all of a sudden, we've changed directions and said, well, you know, maybe we should have some extra inventory. And the way we manage that is um, certainly through the technology and supply chains, but also uh, managing the inventory with software. So, you know, there are algorithms and so forth that help you manage the inventory. Not not unlike what you would do as a consumer. So you might... Um, Say, well, you know, I'd like to have six months worth of canned goods on hand just in case, right? But you you can't buy six months worth of milk to have on hand because it'll go bad, right? So managing those inventories, just as you do as a consumer, is the same thing that businesses doing as well, and trying to determine or optimize exactly what should they buy and store and why and how much and how much they predicting they will need. So how many canned goods are you going to need for six months, for example? Uh, but managing that from a technology perspective.
1: So a lot of this, from what I understand in, in our kind of show prep, is is being driven by the Internet of Things, right? And so this is one of the things that companies are doing to try to better manage these kinds of inventory and purchasing and manufacturing issues. Can Could you explain a little bit about what Internet of Things is and what the implications might be for us?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really interesting. There these buzzwords: supply chain, IoT, three D printing. You know, people throw them around but don't really know what they are. Um, And so I'm like jumping for joy that people are starting to understand what supply chain means from an IoT perspective. So that's the Internet of Things—the way things are connected, right? From a supply chain perspective, again, let's go upstream a little bit. So supplier to supplier. So, for example, um, you've got somebody that's building. um, uh, Well, let's take the laptop example again. So you've got a company building laptops in China that are going to be distributed through Best Buy. And you're going to buy one off Best Buy. All of that, those connections all the way upstream have to be orchestrated. Uh, so, that you don't build too many laptops or too few laptops, so that you don't uh, overcommit, so you don't have too much inventory, not enough. And all of that is triggered by connecting through software, usually, or um, Internet of Things, right? So, one supplier of um, the plastic cases for your laptop is connected to the laptop assembler and they share data over the internet. Um, so that's one kind of connection or through a supplier portal or <clears throat> some advanced uh, software that allows them to communicate together. Um, another uh, supplier then triggers, uh, tells Best Buy, you've got a shipment coming and that's uh, through electronic, electronic data interchange, which is a very old technology, but still very much in use today. Uh, and then Best Buy is able to advertise in online or in a newspaper to tell you, the consumer, that they have product available or they have a, 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 some kind of uh, supply available. And those connections are made uh, via software typically. From an IoT perspective, there are other connections too. And um, so uh, Best Buy may have an um, IQ code or uh, some kind of... Um, RFID tag on this equipment. And when it comes into the back dock, instead of trying to count them, you know, do they say, well, you know, we just got a shipment of 225 laptops. And instead of counting them one by one, uh, it's simply scanned with an uh, RFID code. And they know instantly how many they got, how many boxes are there with the codes on them. So that's a good example of IoT. Uh, then, you know, when they scan it at your checkout, that's a, the use of um, Bluetooth technology, maybe, or, you know, some kind of scanning technology that allows the, it, it allows the inventory systems to go up or down. So now they know they started out with 225 laptops um, and they just sold one. So now they have 224. So that's a way they keep count of inventory in, in the old days you know, that was done by hand, right? Or somebody ran out to the warehouse to count how many they had left.
1: Right, exactly.
2: IoT is good in that regard. this is another thing that I think is fairly important if you think about uh, the improvement of operations over time. So IoT is now used extensively in manufacturing operations. So consider having, uh, let's say, five machines side by side that are doing different things. So one might be stamping out a part and another machine is cutting the trimming the plastic and another machine is uh, uh, painting a product something like that and all of these machines are operating at a different pace so the first one's going at 100 per hour the second one's going at 20 an hour and the third one's going at 200 an hour in order to optimize that production so you don't get stuck with lumps of inventory in between the machines they have to talk to each other so there has to be sensors and and software and the internet connection inside the plant not just externally but inside the plant to be able to talk these machines to talk to one another so that so there's an even flow of equipment through the whole operation um, and that, that is really important. I mean, we used to do this stuff by hand in the past, right? Or somebody would eyeball it and say, oh, machine number one, you're going too fast. Or machine number two, speed up, you're going too slow. Now that's all done by sensors and, and the internet um, connections.
1: Well, so- that's, that's precisely the issue, though, isn't it? And this is where I think we start getting into really the potential for cyber traps, maybe not so much for consumers but certainly for businesses in terms of the vulnerability of those communication channels and the threat to the stealing, if you will, or misappropriation of the data that is collected and stored.
2: Yeah. So <clears throat> let's turn to uh, expert witness stuff for a minute. So, um, so I work on a lot of cases that involve um, global supply chains of all kinds. And what um, you'll see is when companies share data through IOT, for example, and even your your um, your phone, for example, is connected and you're sharing data. If you search on Google, Google knows what you're doing and you know follows you around with ads and stuff. So when companies share data like that across company lines, that's your data, right? And you may have said, yeah, it's okay for Google. you know, I give permission for Google to, uh, see what I'm tracking, uh, but you didn't necessarily give that same permission to target who, uh, you know, is going to track you now on the Internet because Google has given target permission to do that. Right. So all these things are, are connected up and down the supply chains and from an expert witness perspective, all that data and information is subject to uh, to being called into court. Uh, and it could be evidence for something, some wrongdoing of some kind or another or some breach of contract. So every time there's a connection across um, uh, technical lines, there's a vulnerability and a potential for uh, for um, evidence. You know, it's just something to be aware of and to consider as you're giving out your information and permissions for people to use it.
1: Well, one of the real challenges, of course, is that It's very difficult for the average consumer to read through these terms of conditions and all the rest of that, terms of service, whatever it is. I mean, they tend to be very densely packed (laughs) documents. Any thoughts on how manufacturers or businesses like Best Buy uh, could do a better job of helping consumers understand where their data is going?
2: Yeah, I mean, keep in mind that uh, that these agreements that you sign, and we all sign them, uh, were written by lawyers <laughs> and and not ordinary people, so they're difficult to read through and to understand and to interpret. And, On behalf of my former profession, <laughs> yeah, well, I know, I know. <laughs> and I work with lawyers every day, so I'm you know feel I feel some empathy there, uh, but you know, I don't read them. I got to be honest. I decide them. I, I don't, I'm, I, can't, I don't have time to sit down and try to pour through all this stuff. And even if I did, would I not agree and not be able to get the service? I mean, that's sort of the condition of the service, right? So in a lot of ways, you don't have any protection for yourself <clears throat> as a consumer.
0: Rosemary, I think that piece is really important that if you want to use the the service, then you have to agree to what they say. And and you don't really have an option there. And and that's an important thing to recognize. And I haven't really thought of it that way uh, much in the past. But now that I think about that, that really is it's kind of like coercion. Like if you want to do this, then you have to you have to abide by it. You have to do exactly what we say, which um, can be, you know, it certainly sets you up for not having any protection because you, know, you agreed to do it and otherwise you just don't use the service. And I think one thing that's, that's fascinating is uh, David Hanemeyer Hansen, who's the founder of a company called Basecamp, recently talked about how a company can control your digital life because of a policy that they put into place, not necessarily because of anything else, but because they said, this is how it is. And so if you invest your time and energy into that service, then you're essentially setting yourself up to potentially be held hostage by that at some later date, uh, even if that's not what you're intending. Um, And so that's not specifically about supply chain, but it makes me think that there are a lot of these things where we just don't have the control that we feel like maybe we should.
2: Ah, Jethro, everything (laughs) is about supply chain. (laughs) That's my world, right? Yeah, (laughs)
1: that's that's good.
2: (laughs) Yeah so let's let's take some other examples uh, and how uh how we've addressed these other examples. Let's take your utilities for example. So I'm here in California um I am a customer of Pacific Gas and Electric and I don't have any other options. That's it. It's a monopoly. Right? I either if I want to use electricity and gas I have to pay Pacific Gas and Electric. I have no choice and it's the same kind of parallel. So what the world has done is put regulatory bodies in place to address that. So there's the California Public Utilities Commission that has oversight with respect well supposedly with respect to rates and um, other spending that the that Pacific Gas and Electric is allowed to do or should be doing. So when you think of that in terms of signing that little Apple contract for um, for your your iPod, you, you know, you have to think in terms of, well, I'm, I'm giving away all these rights and shouldn't somebody be regulating it. Right. So that that's where I think we're going to have to head. Is there there is no if you have no choice. Right. You, if you want to use a service, you have no choice. It's like Pacific Gas and Electric then somebody needs to regulate that on my behalf because i don't have a choice i don't have any other way of doing it and you have the
0: power to do it too
1: (laughs) and rosemary if if i may i'd like to thank you for so beautifully setting up a call out to one of my earlier books american privacy because i will take some credit for making that precise point In the conclusion of the book that we need a consumer privacy protection bureau or something like that to help regulate and level the playing field between huge huge corporations and consumers who really as jethro correctly points out are getting the short end of the data stick here and so um for folks who want to dig that out of amazon uh, more than happy to have you do that. One of the things I did want to make sure we left a little bit of time to get to, because it appeals not only to the tech side of me, but also the historical side, which is this concept of industry 4.0. And just as a little bit of background, um, I and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, Rosemary, but it seems like there are three generally recognized industrial revolutions, right? There's uh, steam and water power was really the first, then the onset of electricity, and then computerization. So, what's the fourth, and what are yeah. the implications for us as individuals?
2: Yeah, so Industry 4.0 is a, coin, a term that was coined a few years ago by uh, by a company in Germany, who, of course, you know, probably everybody recognizes Germany as a big industrial power and has a lot of advanced technologies. And so um, industry 4.0 is sort of a continuation of the computerization of uh the the industry and not just in software, but even machine tools are now computerized. It used to be, you know, you could get a, a worker to work a machine tool, and now you need an engineer because it's computerized to the extent where it's where it's much more sophisticated. Uh, so it's a continuation down that pathway as well as it involves things like 3D printing uh the internet of things certainly and artificial intelligence um so these are the the new pathways for um for technology that are now being introduced beyond simply computer use so it's a it's a next evolution and uh <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I run the Reshoring Institute, um, I think you mentioned at the beginning, which is a, a nonprofit organization. We help companies bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And one of the legs of the stool, so there's three legs to the stool. One is com, uh, consumer desire, so wanting to buy things that are made in the U.S. In fact, we, we have a survey that's posted on our website. It's reshoringinstitute.org. Uh, Right on the home page, there's a link to the survey we did last October, uh, asking Americans if they prefer to buy American products. It's a pretty interesting survey, I gotta say. And yes, the answer was yes, and they're willing to pay more for them. That's one leg of the stool. Um, the other leg of the stool is um, the government. So, what is the government making making it harder or easier? for companies to compete and so we know some some good things were done in the past few years with tax rates and um and so forth so that's a yes and now the biden administration has uh uh, put together some executive orders that are favorable in terms of manufacturing And then the third leg of the stool is technology advancements, industry 4.0. so making it economically feasible to also manufacture here in the U.S. preferably. Uh, But to do that, you have to introduce technology, improve productivity and reduce costs.
1: So a couple of different things pop up out of that. I mean, obviously, uh, we need to renew and expand our teaching of science and engineering and technology in this country actually i'm i'm working on this new book the rise of the digital mob and in the opening chapter one of the things i talk about is the national uh, national defense education act which was passed the year after sputnik launched And it was the United States' huge investment in science and technology because the nation had freaked out that we were falling behind the Soviets in terms of rocket technology. Coincidentally, this morning, I saw an article in the Washington Post that talked about um, a similar investment being needed to confront China's advances in artificial intelligence. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on that kind of global confrontation, I guess is probably the best word.
2: Yeah. So, um, so I add
0: a question about China also, and maybe you can uh, approach both of these because we hear in the news that, that China is our enemy and we should not like be doing business with them. Uh, and so there's some, there's some fear around that. There's some trepidation about things from China could be infected with viruses and things like that. So maybe if you can, that aspect in as well i don't know if you can or not but
2: Uh, absolutely so (laughs) i spent 15 years in management consulting helping my clients offshore to china um it wasn't until 2012 that uh, we established the reshoring institute and started a more um, strategic view but you know by and large from about 95 through 2015 Every executive I was working with wanted to set up shop in China um, because of the because of the low cost of operations, not just labor costs, and that's that's key because uh, you know now they're saying oh labor costs are going up that's that's somewhat true, <laughs> but it's really the overall cost of operations. And also in 2001, with the rise of China to the World Trade Organization, which allowed for opening trade between the countries. Um, But so what's happened is, um, you know, China has at first became industrialized through taking on contract manufacturing. So we were sending our goods to China to have them manufactured. We helped and introduced technology there. When we were manufacturing there, we sent our tools, dyes, molds, our engineers, everybody. We taught them how to make things. And then, you know, as would be a natural evolution, China started making their own stuff and uh, are um, graduating uh, about 700,000 engineers a year. In the U.S., we graduate about 65,000. So 10 times more than we are. They have excellent engineers. And, of course, they started making stuff and developing software and so forth in terms of embedding chips and stealing ip and all of that yes has gone on i've seen it with my customers um you know we've had all kinds of strategies and so forth we've seen the government reaction to zte which is uh, a a big electronics manufacturer in china and huawei um, where uh, there is um, competitive concern about embedding technology and stealing the technology from the u.s so there's government intervention to try to control that. And then there's the development of AI. And um, as closely as I watch China, I would tell you, I think they're a little ahead of us right now. They're actually have pulled ahead. Now um, we can look at them as being a fierce competitor, uh, maybe an enemy in the U S there's an, there's been an awful lot of rhetoric um, certainly through the Trump administration about uh, or China bashing. <laughs> Telling everybody China's, you know, the evil devil and you know it's no good and Chinese people are no good and all that. Well, there's an equal amount going on in China. So the Chinese government is American bashing. You know, we used to have such a great relationship. I would I would go to China several times a year, work with clients there, I'd stay for three, four months. Um now it's scary. They're afraid of Americans. They don't like Americans. You know, it's it's not a very healthy environment anymore. I mean, we have really bashed the trade between the two countries. Now, one other perspective that I have, too, is that while China may be pulling somewhat ahead in AI, we're we're running a pretty competitive race. But in my perspective, Technology should should be the thing that raises all boats. So it should help the world. We shouldn't be in a competitive. It's us or them that's going to win this race. It should be the races to help humanity. And no right. matter whether that uh, you know that that kind of product or um, the help helpfulness of uh, AI comes from the U.S. or from China, it should help humanity. Um, and so, you know, let's compete for the good of everybody.
1: That's a, that, it's a lovely sentiment, Rosemary, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we are each in our own way very tech positive, and, and we talk about these issues because we want to make sure that people use the technology well. You know, I think one of the things that occurs to me, it was a little bit, you know, I grew up in the arms race. Right and and what and I never understood what were we racing towards? <laughs> yeah. It was a race, but it had no clear finish line. And it seems to me that artificial intelligence is the same kind of thing, except it's probably even more dangerous because of the way in which, theoretically, it self-replicates and self-educates. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I don't want to get all kind of Terminator on us, you know, the Terminator movies, but I don't think it's unreasonable to be respectful of this technology. It's a little bit like doing gene modifications. Sometimes yeah, but, you don't know what the technology will do when you use it like that.
2: Yeah. But, you know, in cre- creating hate and distrust between our countries, between the U.S. and China doesn't help. That makes it feel like there's a winner and loser. If we can work more cooperatively, um, and albeit, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not naive. I've been to China lots of times, and I know there are um, government manipulations, currency manipulations, human rights issues. You know, they're there for sure, and they're real. Uh, but, it, you know, I like to say we need to have diplomacy, not lunacy. Um, going forward. So we need to figure out a way to work in cooperation for the good of all, instead of uh, uh, a winner or loser, because by God, you know, China is going to be a fierce competitor and are determined to win against us. So we need to be aware of that and figure out a different pathway going forward.
1: Yeah, you know, obviously the economic issues, which are central to the work you do, you know, are a big motivator for the AI arms race, if you will. But, you know, the more interesting question, and, and this is where we start to look at, for instance, China's implementation of the Great Firewall, and its suppression of speech regarding the Uyghurs, you know, is the use of artificial intelligence intended to be a tool for promoting Chinese governmental systems?
2: Absolutely. That, yeah. Absolutely. That, does. Just as the U.S. has been trying to promote democracy forever since the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so the China is try- China's trying to promote their way of doing business as well. And, you know, a lot of people don't know that the Great Chinese Firewall prevented, um, it started out to prevent um, what, uh, from Tiananmen Square on. What mm-hmm. happened with respect to the Chinese government and, um, you know, a lot of Ch- Tiananmen Square is not taught in Chinese schools. Um, so most of the citizens have no idea what happened. Uh, it wasn't televised, um, you know, unless you were in the square. Most of China had no idea and still doesn't to this day. Um, that there was a revolution by students in T- Tiananmen Square and, and about, I think, 3,500 students were shot by the Chinese government. So, you know, the, the wall was um, constructed for that and also, um, you know, for other revolutionaries across China and so forth. And, you know, AI, I think, could be used in this in a similar way to prevent knowledge and to to go forward with these Chinese ideas that they would like to impose on America. And that surprises people. And on the other hand, we're all over the world trying to promote democracy. right? So it may be a a battle of the wits. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm I'm sure it will be. Um, Jethro, you should jump in.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I just, I think that that piece is really interesting because that So I lived in Russia for two years on a mission for my church and got a totally different experience of what that part of the world was like. And they had lived under communism, had experienced it and were able to share what that experience was like. And they had the benefit of living under a more capitalistic society as well, a more democratic society, even though there are still issues, of course. But what I learned from them was that everywhere people want to be respected as human beings and i mean how do you phrase this but if you're if you're pushing an ideology that is not going to respect human beings as human beings then to me you're on the wrong side because that's what that's what everybody is looking for and so as you know you mentioned before about about the ar arms race and as that continues to go that's going to determine a lot of the things you know, whoever, quote unquote, wins that and has and the way they win it, in my mind, is they're producing the technology that everybody's using that is is winning when you're there, then you're going to add things in there that determine what different what different ideologies get pushed. And to me, that's really, really important because we want an ideology that allows people to continue to be free and doesn't oppress people. Um, regardless of, of what their individual beliefs may be,:
2: I know you can't see me, but I'm shaking my head yes.: <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm in favor of democracy for yeah. sure, and would like to see that idea expand around the world. and I think you know that's really true in Hong Kong, where they're trying to do the same thing. Uh, so yeah, if somebody wins this race, instead of cooperating, if we compete and someone wins this race, then that ideology is indeed going to spread.
0: Yeah. Interesting well,
1: stuff, Rosemary.
0: Uh, that's a deep place to end, but I think that's a good place to end also. And I, I appreciate learning from you. And to be honest, I thought, man, supply chain, how is that going to apply to what we're talking about? But Rosemary, you brought it home. Thank you.
1: Okay. <laughs> it was really wonderful, Rosemary. I, I will close by saying that I went back to Guangzhou a couple of years ago as a Fulbright specialist and stopped in Beijing on my way out of the country and made a point of walking over to those streets beside Tiananmen Square to see where that young man stood. And it, it was so moving to me personally as someone who respects democracy and, and the courage that took. And it, it, it's deeply saddening that so many people in China are unaware of that. So thank yeah. you for mentioning that. Excellent interview. Well done, Rosemary. Okay. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of interesting experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology.
0: You can find the Cybertraps podcast in all your favorite podcast apps, We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this interview. So please leave us a five-star rating interview in your podcast service of choice. We appreciate having you join us and we look forward to having you join us on our live episode on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually.